Welcome to a Veterans Podcast, powered by Wisconsin Veterans Network, the show where we hear unique, inspiring stories from veterans all over. Veterans who've transitioned, who've overcome obstacles, and even those still struggling. We will learn all veterans have a unique story, ones filled with pain and triumphs, and we will learn no veteran is alone, no matter the path they took. We share their stories to help motivate and inspire the world, to help understand what it means to be a veteran, and most of all, we share to give them a voice amongst the noise. You can find us at aveteranspodcast.com to learn more and how you can be a part of the show. Welcome back, everybody, to a Veterans Podcast. It is lovely to have you here. Um, you know, this job is super cool, and I probably have said it a million times before, but the opportunity to interview some really amazing people talking about some of the hardest times in their life is just so inspiring. And I hope that all of you, our listeners, really feel that as well. Um, you know, it's important for us to tell everybody's story. You don't have to be, you know, this phenomenal whoever in the military. You just have to have served because everybody's service matters. So I'm just so incredibly grateful um, that you all listen uh, every time we post an episode and that people reach out to us and they're like, hey, man, let me tell my story. And so that's super cool. And today's episode is no different. It's unique. It's inspiring. It's awesome. Today we have on Master Sergeant Brad Thomas from the U.S. Army. He served from 1990 to 2010, and his service is phenomenal. Um, if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, he was there at um, the battle at Mogadishu, and he's just an awesome dude, and I'm so excited to have him on the show, so um, I'm really looking forward to it. But today's show is sponsored by Wisconsin Veterans Network, an established Wisconsin nonprofit ran by Veterans for Veterans. Their mission is to provide guidance and support for all veterans, whether guard, reserve, active, or even a bad discharge, looking for any kind of assistance in the state of Wisconsin. If you are a Wisconsin veteran looking for an answer, whether a simple question about benefits or are currently homeless, give them a call today. You can find more information about them at wisvetsnet.org or on our website, aveteranspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And y'all, our TikTok is pretty awesome. So if you're like a closet TikToker, feel free to add us at a Veterans Podcast. We post a lot of cool sneak peek. Uh, clips of what to expect in the next episode. So just check us out, shout us out, sh give us a shout out. I don't know. Either way, listen to us and yeah, let's get Brad on the line. Hey, Brad, welcome to a veterans podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Um, uh, I'm, I'm psyched to be on. I'm super pumped. So this guy reached out and was like, hey, I know Brad Thomas. Do you want to interview him? And I'm not going to lie. I had to like look you up. 
because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that good. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. So I'm excited to have you on the show. Well, you know, I appreciate any time. I think that was Eddie that linked us up, but yeah. I appreciate him kind of helping spread the word and things like that. And it's been uh, three years of pushing this thing pretty hard to try and get the word out. So I, I look at any opportunity I get. Um, if I can reach one person, then that's, that's great. You know, whether it's Joe Rogan or whether it's the, the newest and least listened to podcast on the planet, I don't really care. I, I just, want to get the word out and uh, appreciate folks like you that are doing what you're doing so that people like me can get the word out. Well, thank you. I, it's, um, you know, I never thought being a podcast host would be as cool as it is, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really, have, I'm enjoying it. Go ahead. I have, I have people hit me up all the time on social media and they're like, you should start a podcast. You should start a podcast. And I'm like, you don't get it, man. Like that becomes a thing in itself. And then I don't have the time to do the things that I'm actually doing because I'll put a hundred percent of what I'm doing into that. And, you know, you won't hear anything about me. You'll hear about guests and you'll hear about, you know, those kinds of things. But, um, I would love to do one, you know, if, yeah. if I had the time, if there were like 36 hours in a day, maybe <laughs> I could do it. But I feel that until this then, is... This is like a full-time thing, even though I have a full-time job, like a real job. This is like a side job that's full-time too. I don't know. It's crazy, but it's all good. I love totally. it. I live for it. Totally get it. All right. So let's jump right in. Why did you join the army and why did you join the military? Like the whole thing. What's kind of the story behind that? The whole thing. So to a, attempt to like shorten um, shorten it as much as I possibly can and make it brief so that it's enjoyable to listen to. <laughs> um, I had kind of like three things happen all about the same time. And it was at the end of 1989. Uh, so like in December of 89 into like January of 90. And the, the first was the invasion of Panama. And I was over at a bandmate's house. I played music before I joined the, the military mm -hmm. and was over at a bandmate's house and we were drinking beers right in tunes and saw the invasion of Panama kind of happening as it was happening on CNN, which was the only news network back then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had some live footage happening and stuff like that. And it was very exciting to me. I thought it was, you know, I felt super patriotic watching it. I thought, you know, I understood like the whole drug war and what was going on with that and why mm -hmm. and, and thought it was, was super cool. So that happened. Um, a buddy of mine that had joined the air force was back. He had gone through basic training in AIT and he was an EOD guy in the air force, but he came back, you know, he had maybe been gone six months or nine months or something like that and was home on vacation for Christmas. And so I got to hang out with him and he was telling me about um, guys that came at the end of his basic training class to recruit for what I didn't know then, but know now it was like special tactics squadron or, you know, combat controller, that type of thing. So it was like, yeah, these guys jump in behind enemy lines and they rescue down pilots. And that kind of, you know, struck a chord with me. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, finally like January of 90, like the band just completely fell apart 
and I had been, you know, working on that for the better part of like three years or longer, and uh, with, the, with this kind of same group of guys, and it just all kind of came to pieces. And so it left me with this, well, what do I do now? Do I, um, you know, try and rebuild another band and put years of my life into that, or do I try something new? And so I went and talked with the Air Force recruiter, and that was kind of how the whole thing started. The Air Force, huh? There's so many yeah. jokes. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I know. I so know. many Air Force jokes, but um, that's cool. I mean, it's interesting. So a lot of the veterans that we've had on um, are post-9-11 veterans. And so to talk to somebody who had a, a considerable amount of service prior to post-9-11, it always um, kind of is interesting to me to see what caused you to join. Because for a lot of us, um, you know, I did 10 years in the Navy, and, and a lot of that was because of 9-11. So um, right. where were you on September 11th, 2001, and how did that impact your career in the military? So to, to complete the thought on the first thing, I, I went and talked to the Air Force recruiter, and after getting the runaround for the better part of like three months, I was leaving one day, and the army guy was like, Hey man, what, what's that guy telling you? What's the deal? And I was like, well, they won't guarantee me anything. And I just want to guarantee to try. I understand you can't, you know, say that I'm going to make it through whatever the training regiment is, but I want to at least be given the opportunity to try. And maybe I'll be in the middle of basic training and, you know, they'll say, Oh, Hey Thomas, we need a cook in Alaska. And I get sent there. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know about the military or how it works or anything else. So the army recruiter says, well, what do you want to be? And I said, I don't know, like Delta Force. <laughs> and Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but I feel like a had, lot of people say that when they walk in, like, yeah. I want to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly what he did. He laughed just like you did. <laughs> and I, and he says, well, dude, you can't do that. You got to do something before that, like uh, special forces. And I go, okay, I'll do that. And he goes, well, you can't do that either. You, you got to be something before that, like a ranger. And so I came in with an option 40 Ranger contract. That's how, that's how I started. So when the fast forward, you know, deployed to Mogadishu and did the Black Hawk down thing as our young Ranger and then stayed in and went to the 75th Ranger Regiment reconnaissance detachment, which was, you know, a little bit more specialized and did some, you know, cool things like military free fall and scuba and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, more of a first name basis. And it was a, at that time, you know, Delta was kind of unobtainable and you didn't really know people generally from, you know, the Ranger line companies that went to Delta Force and made it. They usually got told, you know, go somewhere and mature, go to special forces for two years and then come back, that kind of thing. So I went to the Ranger recon detachment and did that for the better part of three years and then went to Delta selection in the fall of 98. So I got to Delta at the very beginning of 1999. So I spent a couple of years there and uh, doing, you know, kind of the training cycle and everything else. And there really was no war. So, um, you know, when September 11th happened, I was at home and I was supposed to be leaving the next day, the 12th, to go run uh, our Delta Force selections and every 
every class that they run, they use operational people to be a part of the selection process for a number of reasons. But one of the things it does is it it gives unit members buy-in, right? You mm-hmm. know that they haven't changed the standards. Like you see these guys going through, you know, it's exactly the same as when you went through, however many years prior that might have been. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting at home, packing my stuff, you know, making sure I had all my things so that the next day on the 12th, I could leave and go up and help run the course for, you know, the better part of 45 days. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the news, it was on live. So I had, you know, was drinking coffee, had the Today Show on and um, watched the second plane as it flew into the tower. And I knew right then and there, you know, my world is changing. Yeah. I had deployed. I'd, I'd been to Bosnia a couple times. I'd been to Mogadishu. And really, it was just this feeling of unknown. Like, okay, I know I'm going somewhere. I'm at the tip of the spear. I'm definitely going somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know how soon that's going to be. Is that going to be in like three days? Is it going to be in three months? Is it going to be, you know, what's it going to be? Yeah. Um, but I knew my life was, you know, definitely going to change. And And really, nobody knew how long, you know. It wasn't like... Are we going and invading? Are we going to occupy? Is this going to be a five years in the making, you know, type of thing? I don't think that any of us would have predicted, you know, 20 years later that we would still, 21 years later, that we would still be, um, you know, fighting in the same war zones. I don't think any of us predicted that. But that's where I was, and that's kind of my thoughts then. Crazy. Um, So just to rewind a little bit, um, when you went to Mogadishu, how you were only in for like three years at that point, right? Yeah, I so I was on a delayed enlistment program, and most people, one of the things I try and do is like educate people as we become a more peacetime army. Try and educate dudes that have been in since dudes and dudettes uh, <laughs> that have been in since 2000, uh, 2001. You know, it was a different thing back then, and it was hard for me just to get in the army because when I was a kid, I was allergic to milk. Oh, like geez. it was a big deal. Had yeah. to have all kinds of medical waivers. If you had smoked marijuana, they weren't taking you. Mm-hmm. If you had any type of alcohol related offense, they weren't taking you. So I signed in May of 90 and I didn't even get into basic training until the middle of November, 1990. Oh, wow. So by the time I finished the Ranger, you know, pipeline, basic training, AIT, infantry guy, uh, airborne school and the Ranger indoctrination program, it was April of 91. So I was there, yeah, about two and a half years before we went to Mogadishu. That's crazy because, I, you know, I obviously I don't know um, all the specifics of that moment, but from what I have read, I can't imagine only being in the military for two years and then that being like a moment you know what I mean like how do you how did you kind of you went through that moment and then you come home how do you process that because this day and age it's very common to meet somebody who's been to Iraq or Afghanistan and they talk about what they experienced or they don't talk about it but you kind of know how was it coming home after something like that? That's that's a great question. And I've, I've talked about this before on a few things that I've done, but this was a long before there was any sort of, you know, good counseling in place or any type of like protocol for what a dude would go through, you know, when, 
when it came back, you know, time mm-hmm. to redeploy home and things like that. So the only thing that we got, and it, and it was, you know, a pretty brutal 18 hour long battle. In addition, like that wasn't the only mission that we did there. We yeah. got another firefight. There were other things that we were doing and it wasn't, you know, if, if Black Hawk Down at that two day period hadn't happened, we still had experienced, you know, some pretty significant things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that, that we had was one of the Delta Force uh, psychologists came over and kind of gathered the Rangers that were remaining. Um, I think we had 77 dudes out of like maybe 120 people that were on the ground that day. I think 77 were wounded. Um, the large majority were significant enough that they got sent home or sent to Germany to the hospital, um, you know, or were killed in action. So mm-hmm. there was a significant loss. And the only thing that we got told was like, all right, guys, you know, you've just lived through something that will give you an excuse at life. And if you want to be a bad person and beat your wife and do all the wrong things and use drugs and oh my goodness. everything else, like you have a reason to do that. But I'm here to tell you that if you do that, you're letting the bad guy win. And don't let the bad guys win. That was really the message. Wow. And so that's one of the things that I try and talk, you know, about when I do things like this is to let people know, you know, I've been there many more times than that. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you allow yourself to do things that aren't the best, you know, behaviors, you're really kind of allowing you're giving an excuse and you're allowing the bad guy to get the best of you. And anyway, I took that very, you know. I took it to heart and mm-hmm. I've tried to live it the best that I can. And that doesn't mean that I'm perfect by any means. Yeah. But none of us are. <laughs> that always, that always stuck with me. And the visual of that, I still remember, uh, Doc Green was the guy that said it and seeing him years later when I, when I got the Delta. But, um, yeah, that's, that was it. That no other counseling, no anything else. We got, uh, redeployed at the end of October and, when we came home, they gave us like a four day weekend and there were guys getting brought back to the Ranger, you know, barracks and empty cars and oh, you know, it was a total shit show. Oh, I bet. Um, and then after the four day weekend, they gave us like 10 days of vacation, you know, leave. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the people then, um, and this goes into the bigger thing, which is that was a peacetime army. There were, there were guys that were there just for the college money. You know, Mm -hmm. that was a big thing back in the eighties and nineties was join the army, do four years and they pay for your college. So people went and they did that. Their families didn't have the money to pay for college. They joined the military. And so most of the guys that I served with in Mogadishu in the Rangers got out soon thereafter. Like my peers, we had been there, you know, I had been there two and a half years. So they had about another year and then they got out of the army and, you know, that was kind of what they were left with. No counseling, no help, no PTSD, no disability unless they were injured, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, that, and that's it. That's so crazy. That's so crazy just to hear that and then know what is available now is uh, that's such a shame for those that got out after four years because yeah. there are still people. I mean, I, 
I work with a lot of veterans, and there's still even Vietnam veterans who don't consider themselves veterans because they weren't treated in a way that would be, you know, defining of that, if that makes sense. Like, it's yeah. just, it's such a crazy thing. Even even from the time I retired in 2010, like, there really wasn't a whole lot else <laughs> going on in 2010. Like, mm-hmm. there, were, there weren't a whole lot of things. My disability rating sucked, you know, <laughs> even though I had done all this stuff, and it's, it's never been improved, and I probably will never take the time to improve it or anything else. But, you know, there wasn't a whole lot more in 2010. So if that was in 1993 and those guys got out in 94, not much changed. That's crazy. That's so crazy. So so you did 20 years. Did you get out because your 20 years was up, or why did you get out, and was it your choice? It was definitely my choice. I retired and uh, yeah, did 20 years in like 18 days, whatever the fair, <laughs> <laughs> like scraped across the finish line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was ready for something else. And I hit I hit the 12-year mark in the Army, 12, 13 years. I was an E8 and, you know, promoted very quickly. And I was just ready to do something different. It, it, even at that point, you know, like having deployed a few times, then, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of like, okay, what else can I do? Like just continue to deploy or, you know, I, I don't know. It wasn't a challenge anymore. Mm-hmm. So I was ready to challenge myself with something different and wanted to do something different. And, you know, so when it came time, I was, I was ready to get out. It wasn't something that, you know, I'm sad about I it. feel like the guys that have a lot of trouble with separation from the service, I feel like you know, number one, they, they kind of solely identify as, as the job that they're doing, you know? So if you're in Delta force, you're kind of like, you live the life of a Delta force operator and that's what you identify with. And it's your whole being and everything else. And, you know, although it was a part of what I did, I was a lot more things than that. I was still a musician, Mm -hmm. you know, I was a father, I was a husband, I was all of these other things that I identified with as strongly as I identified with being a Delta Force guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen a lot of really amazing commandos that, you know, I would follow into any battle, but miserable in, in other aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I try and talk with young folks today about is, you know, there's more to it than being a great commando. Like if you can be well-rounded and you can be all these things, then you're going to be a whole lot better off. Um, and the other guys that I, I see that have struggled with things are guys that had it taken away from them, right? People mm-hmm. that, you know, hey, they work and sacrifice forever to get to this place. It took me eight years to get the Delta Force. You know, it's wow. not an overnight thing. It's not like, and that's, and that's probably pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are guys that come later than that. There are maybe people that are, you know, six years, seven years, but it usually is, that's a long time to get to the place, you know, yeah, definitely. And, and putting up with a lot of stuff and a lot of training and a lot of bullshit that you don't agree with and everything else. And mm-hmm. then you get in the door and you do a trip and you get banged up and now you're out. Ugh. And, you know, those guys have a hard time. No yeah. doubt. Yeah, definitely. So did you do anything then to prepare for your transition? Like take taps class or whatever you guys call it in the army. I'm not sure, but um, like those yeah, transition like, courses. I think it's ACAP is what they call it. And I blew everything off. 
I, uh, and hopefully the government doesn't come after me, but I forged like every signature that I had to get, like the post library. I'm like, yeah, I've never been, I don't even know where the post library is. I don't think I need to clear it. So I get done with all my paperwork. I literally skipped the entire thing and just, you know, took off for three months or however much time they gave me mm-hmm. and forged everything. And when I took it back to the person who was in charge of like collecting it all up, that would give you the, you know, final authorization. Okay. You got all your paperwork cleared. Mm-hmm. She looked at it and she was like, wow, that's interesting. The library, usually they have a stamp. They don't sign it. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> they couldn't find <laughs> it that day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she was. She lost her stamp. I don't know what the deal was, but uh, so I, I really didn't do much, and I think psychologically, I knew going into the whole transition process that you know I was going to lose my identity, the thing that I had been and you know had sacrificed to be. It's like I'm not going to be that anymore, but it'll be a part of who I am, mm-hmm. and. You know, I, I don't know. I felt like I was very prepared myself, just kind of going into it, knowing that, okay, it's time for a new chapter. I'm I'm going to rebrand myself and, you know, put on a new mask or whatever. And this is who I am now. And this is who I'm going to be. That's, that's really fascinating because a, a majority of the people I've interviewed um, don't ever approach it in that way. And so how do you, because... Delta's a huge deal, right? Like that that's like elite of the elite, um, unless you're a Navy SEAL, only because I'm partial to the Navy. But um, but that's like a, that's a very elite force and you tried and and worked so hard for eight years to get there. How do you just pack that up and and say, okay, now I'm gonna be a new person? I mean, that couldn't have been easy. I think it's something that happens over time. And, you know, like I said, I think the thing for me, um, I identified very quickly after getting there. I spent 12 years there Mm -hmm. and I was probably ready to move on at the eight year mark. But now I'm in a place where like, there's not a whole lot of BS. Yeah. It's not like we're standing in formation doing dumb stuff every day. And there aren't inspections. (laughs) You know, it's a, whether you're, you know, whether you're doing the combat role or you're doing another job, a support role of some sort, it's a pretty good place to work. And, yeah. um, you know, so after, you know, I know I've got like four years left and I'm like, what the hell do I do? You know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to keep doing this. I'm ready for another challenge. And I, I think I was able to kind of get myself to a place where like, I was just so ready to move on that. Mm-hmm that it didn't affect me the same way. I don't know. No, that's, but that's cool. I think over the period of years, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, well, tomorrow I got to start out processing and I haven't thought about this. I had thought about it a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got there, interestingly, I think everybody says the same thing when they get there, they'll be like, I'm never leaving this place. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. It's like going to work at Disneyland. You, you know, name the gun, name the range. You can go shoot. 24 7 3 6 5 like mm-hmm. it's, the ranges are always open um you know you get the best of everything the chow hall is amazing all of it right mm-hmm. and then you see people that were like oh that guy's been here like 18 years and you're like holy cow <laughs> and a long time. I, I i i imagined myself to be kind of that and then 
you know, once you start the whole training cycle and it just becomes a redundant thing and now we're going to go do this. Now we're going to do pre-deployment. Now we're going to deploy. Now we're going to get back. Now we're going to, you know, it's just a very cyclical thing. And I just didn't, I don't know, didn't find the challenge in it. So I, I started feeling odd. Like I didn't fit in mm-hmm. when I started realizing that I was ready for a new challenge and there's really nothing else in the military that I can do that's going to challenge me the same way. So, you know, what do I do next? Yeah, the only thing I could do was, you know, get out. That's, that's a really cool perspective though, to have on it, because I think a lot of veterans, when they get out, they don't know how to change their identity and, or not change it, but like modify it, I guess would be a better word. Um, and so to hear that you kind of started doing that while you were still in is, is definitely a unique perspective. And that's pretty cool. Um, so what would you say is the biggest mistake you made during your transition or right after your transition with the exception of not getting the library stamp? What, <laughs> <laughs> what, well, uh, I think it was like it was like library, transportation, all, it was all, <laughs> I was forging everybody's signatures. Um, yeah, I would say that that was probably also my greatest mistake was not taking the time to do things properly. My medical records, you know, they went through those with a fine tooth comb, but there were things like I had had two knee scopes on my right knee mm-hmm. and in my medical records, there was only like one knee scope. They didn't even have one of them listed. And, you know, I got a 20% disability, 10% for hearing, and 10% for my knee. And I think if I had just taken the time to try and either locate the records, you know, but this was also a time like pre-email, you know, when yeah. I was had the first two surgeries, there was no email then. So <laughs> all of their, you know, all of your orders, all of your paperwork and everything was paper. That's it. And if you threw something away, there probably wasn't a copy anywhere. So, but I could have had statements written. I could have taken the time to do that. And I think as an example, I think most of the dudes that are retiring from the unit today are are probably a hundred percent disabled. And Mm -hmm. when I've talked with uh, VA doctors since I had somebody recommend, you know, Hey, talk with this guy. He can up your disability rating. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I, I feel good. You know, I don't, I, I don't feel beat up. Mm-hmm. I talked with this guy and he was like, how many parachute jumps do you have? And I said, I don't know, six, 700. Jeez. And he was like that, he goes, that alone is enough to get you a hundred percent disability just because of the number of times you've hit your head on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> It's and I was not like, funny, oh, but yeah, I, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> like, uh, and your back and your legs, like the impact of hitting the ground. Come on, I need you to get it together, and I need you to work on this because <laughs> uh, you you definitely deserve it. But you know, you're not the only person to be like, "Well, I feel good now, so why even bother?" You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. there's so many veterans who say that, and then you know, 20 years from now, when arthritis kicks in you're gonna be like dang it man so come on let's- yeah it's, it's it's not even that it's it's things like i have um i get these ocular migraines which are totally crazy mm-hmm. i don't get a headache but i literally lose my peripheral vision for the better part of like 30 minutes and i might get one in a year or i might get three in a week 
it's this super hit or miss thing. And I know exactly when it started. I was doing like pre scuba stuff in a pool mm-hmm. and it may have come from whatever. I don't know what it came from, but it definitely happened to me for the first time in the military. And, you know, the doc said the same thing. It was like, man, that's right there is enough again to like yeah. give you a hundred percent disability rating. And I'm just of, I'm of the era, right. Where like, okay, a dude who's missing his leg, that guy is a hundred percent disabled. Like don't put yeah. me in, not in the same category because he's worse off. I just feel like it would be selfish. And there's, there is a stigma with that, you know, mm-hmm. and, there are people from my era that will say things about people that have, you know, gone back and gotten a hundred percent disability rating and like they're speaking down you yeah. know, to them. And that's not the reason why I'm doing it. To be honest, why I haven't done it is out of laziness. Number one, <laughs> that's fair, which, which sounds horrible because <laughs> I'm not a lazy person, but I, I'm just being totally honest. Laziness, number one. And like, I don't feel like when I say laziness, I just don't feel like dealing with VA shit. Like I live in Long Island. The the VA out here is completely different than it probably is near Fort Bragg or near Fort oh, Benning yeah. or definitely. Right. And, and so this is one of the other things. So it, anyway, I, I just don't feel like going and dealing with that whole thing. I don't feel like waiting for some doctor who has no idea what I did, mm-hmm. you know, trying to explain why my elbow, you know, should be, you know, I should be getting some sort of percentage for my elbow yeah. when I look completely healthy, you know, mm-hmm. very fit for my age, everything else. Um, so that's part of it. And uh, I forget what I was saying with the other part. Um, yeah, I just don't feel like dealing with that. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I mean, the VA is like its own beast that you're I think you're 100 percent right in saying like if you're close to like Fort Bragg or. Um, another major military installation, the VA care is much different than, you know, Long Island or even in Wisconsin. Like our, our VA system is so different and, um, you gotta be a special kind of person to be able to deal with it. I hate the VA. (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you. Like that is not my favorite place to be, you know, but yeah, I get it. Um, and one of the other parts to that that I'll say, and this is another thing that I try and tell guys, um, you know, that are getting ready to get out of the military or in the process of starting the transi- transition. You know, when I I moved to New York City when I retired, and Tricare at the time it was Tricare, but they basically assigned me a um, primary care manager, and mm-hmm. my primary care care manager was like downtown Manhattan. So just parking for my appointment was like 47 bucks. Oh my gosh. Right. Just, just to get there. I get there and I went to go see him because I was having some chest pain. And the first thing he did was basically accuse me of using cocaine. And I was like, dude, I still have a TSSDI clearance. Like, yeah. <laughs> I haven't touched cocaine since the 80s. You oh, know, I lied to the recruiter about yeah. that. But, um, <laughs> Too late now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come get me. Um, but I, I never, you know, 
I, I hadn't used any. I hadn't used marijuana. I hadn't used, you know, the pre CBD and all that stuff. Yeah. Like I hadn't used any drugs. And this guy was basically like, oh, that's the only thing that's going to do this. I'm like, uh, oh okay, I don't know what to tell you. So I went from being treated like, you know, a general inside the compound yeah. going to see you know, the best docs that the military had to offer to literally being accused after having to pay 47 bucks to park my Jeep at the doctor. Oh and so gosh. I'll tell people the same thing. And that is just because near a military base, you know, TRICARE might be a great thing. Like all the doctors in Fayetteville are going to accept Humana or TRICARE, whatever the retiree yeah. military healthcare is. They're all going to accept that. When you move somewhere else, it doesn't mean that they accept it. And mm. You really need to kind of be smart about that, you know. That's that's awesome advice. That's really great. Um, I guess a lot of people don't think about that, so that's a really good point um, for our listeners too to pay attention to things like that. But forty-seven dollars to park your car? Ugh, no thank uh, it's you. It's Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. No thanks. Um, exactly. So, what is one thing that you miss the most about being in the military? I think it's a two-part answer. One is the people, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people that you rely on at that level, even if it's, you know, relying on the guy to fix your gun. You know that that guy is doing, or gal is doing everything in the best of their ability to get it done correctly. And you don't necessarily find that outside of places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one part. The other part was, you know, just, the feeling of purpose and, you know, knowing the thing that you're doing is bigger than you. Mm-hmm. That's, those are great. So my question for you then, cause this is something I struggle with. Do you find it difficult now as a civilian to trust people in the way you trusted people in the military? No, I, and oh. it, it's probably one of my, uh, you know, one of my, character flaws would be I, I give people a lot of trust okay and I can't say that I've been burned by that a whole lot you know definitely have been burned by that at some point but I tend to put faith in people and even they don't understand even if if you feel like they're not performing at the level that a support person in Delta Force might perform or a teammate might perform or whatever a lot of times they're doing the best of their ability, what they think is the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. They haven't had to push harder, you know, mm-hmm. than, so it's all very perspective based. Yeah. No, that's, know? that's a great perspective though. Um, look at all this wisdom you're dropping on us here. This is great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So what was the hardest thing to accept once you were out of the military, especially after serving a majority of your adult life um, in the service, what was something that was difficult for you to accept once you were out? Um, I refuse to be a person that looks in the rearview mirror and thinks that the best days were behind them. Mm. You know, so that's part of the answer is, you know, I would think back to, you know, the early 90s and my time in the Rangers and 
um, what that meant to me and knowing that that was behind me, you know, kind of motivated me to always be looking forward, you know, use, use the rear view mirror as needed to give you perspective on where you are in life. But, you know, keep, keep what's in front of you in focus and not fixate on what's behind you. That's awesome. That, it was, I think I just dodged the question. Yeah, you did. But. That's great. That That's fine. <laughs> I'm used to it. No, I'm just, <laughs> um, so then what is the most successful moment you have had since getting out of the military? Um, I think identifying and kind of what led me to form the band, you know, was, was kind of the light bulb moment for me. And mm-hmm. I knew even though we've kind of already talked about this, like, Hey, I'm losing my identity. I'm losing my sense of purpose. I'm losing these things. It wasn't until I pieced together that I could use my musical abilities to give back to the community from which I came from. And, you know, that in itself would give me this huge feeling and sense of purpose. Yeah. I mean, music is, for most people and me too, personally is very therapeutic. Like there's something about the way the song is composed or written or the words or whatever it is that can reach somebody in a moment in their life where they don't forget. Like I, I could tell you some of the music that was playing when I was deployed and those songs to this day, like still give me those memories. So, um, what is it about music for you that, kind of um, open the door to use it as an outlet or things like that? Well, it, it's always been like I've always done it. And, you know, my earliest memories of childhood, I was either singing songs or making up songs or whatever. I did it for, you know, once once I was a little bit older, you know, got into like organized, you know, choir? musical. Were you a choir music- guy? Yeah, I did choir, band, orchestra, like all of that stuff. I Look at you. School band, church <laughs> orchestra, like everything. And then, you know, when ACDC Back in Black came out and I was like nine, <laughs> um, that was like a life-changing moment because I was like, man, you can't play, you can't play that shit on the saxophone. Yeah. So like, how do I get... <laughs> How do I get my hands on a guitar? And, That's awesome. Uh, and it kind of went from there. So it, music's always been a part of my life. And so for me, it was putting the, you know, connecting the dots of using music, using band as a mechanism, you know, to be able to give back to the community. So the light bulb moment was, hey, I can hit up my buddy Jason Everman, who was in Nirvana and Soundgarden prior to joining the Rangers and we served together, you know, at the same time in the Rangers and things like that. Like I can approach him. We can put this band together. We can take the royalties from the music we sell, stream, etc., And we can give it to charitable organizations that we believe in, you know, that do good things for our community. And that's really kind of where it started. So I hadn't thought about it in that regard. So every Every time somebody uh, streams a song or buys a song on iTunes or buys the album, 100% of that is going to two different charitable organizations that help help out for veterans and first responders and not just soft people. 
Um, That's awesome. And you know, that was, that was something to me where it's like, wow, now I, now I, I'm doing this thing that I love, which is playing music and writing music, but it's also, you know, giving back. And that's the greater thing, right? It's not mm-hmm. that I'm trying to be a rock star and be a millionaire because I'm taking all the proceeds that I get from <laughs> it. And Oh, by the way, like recording albums isn't cheap. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we're it's not just asking a people dollars. for money. I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to stand up like a foundation. You know, I felt yeah. like there were enough good things out there that I didn't want to, you know, stand up a foundation. I didn't want to ask people for money. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was one of the clever things in putting that idea together. It was, you know, hey, you're buying a song. You're going to buy a song anyway, or you're going to stream a song or whatever you're going to do. However, you're going to get it. You get it, but you know that this is at least going to a good cause. Yeah. And you know, felt like that was a, a unique way of looking at something. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, um, I think that says a lot about who you are and your character as well. You know, it's um, a lot of military people are always looking for a way to give back, and you're doing it on multiple scales. I mean, not just monetarily, but through your music, um, because that's speaking to many people, you know, and, and so I think that's a cool way to approach it. Um, so that's really neat. Yeah. We had a, I had a really, you know, kind of reasonable goal and thought, okay, if we can get, you know, 5,000 people behind this on social media and we can get, you know, 5,000 records sold or streamed or downloaded, whatever, you know, that'll be like a win. That would be, you know, it would mean enough to me. And we have like, way 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 uh gone way over that and that's been pretty amazing and then you hear from people that are like man this thing hit me you know i was listening to this song in the gym and literally tears started flowing down my face and Mm -hmm. like wow that that's you know i'm glad that it connected with you in a way that um you felt that that's pretty cool yeah um you know but Anyway, so speaking of social media, where can our listeners find you, find your music, um, you know, give us the details? Sure. So it's Silence and Light, uh, Silence and Light Official on Instagram and Facebook. And then I've got uh, Brad Thomas Official Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, if they Google Silence and Light, you'll find everything, whether it's a CD on Amazon or uh, YouTube or however you get your music, it's all, it's on all the same platforms. So awesome. wherever anybody would typically find their music, Spotify, uh, Apple Music, iTunes. And again, it's, it's really like if you buy it, then you're contributing something. We don't get the same type of royalty from a stream that you do from a sale. So mm-hmm. If a song sells for 99 cents, just to give people a quick education, but if a song sells for 99 cents, generally the the musician, the artist, whoever wrote it, uh, is getting like 63 cents. And then if you're a band and you, you know, share music royalties and you're splitting <laughs> that five ways, then it's not a very lucrative thing unless you're like in the millions and millions of purchases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Streams are kind of the same way. It's like we get a monthly or every quarter, I think we get a royalty statement for streams. And 
you know, people are by far more, you know, why buy an album when you can just stream it for free, you know, 12 bucks a month for Apple music or whatever. But I just want people to know you don't have to buy it. Just know that if you do, that's the money is going to two different charitable organizations. One of them is Warriors Heart, which is a physical place in Texas that helps uh, veterans and first responders. They, the thing that I love about Warriors Heart is that it gets guys and gals clean first. Okay. And you know, people people think of PTSD as being something that like, oh, I just have this, you know, psychological disorder and it causes me this, but it's usually one big ball of stuff going on, and it's usually wrapped up in alcohol and drug abuse. Mm-hmm. So they get people clean, and then they use art and uh, whatever form that might be as a form of therapy, which I absolutely love, right? Because they use music, they might do sculpting, they might do painting, writing, whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's, to me, that was huge. And the other one is Marine Raider Foundation, which is more of a direct compensation to families of lost Marine Raiders. And, you know, it will do things such as, uh, Marine Raiders killed in combat or killed in training. It'll help the family. Maybe they can't afford to fly the whole family to Arlington. It'll take care of plane and hotel and oh, and cool. do all those kinds. So, yeah, between the two of those. Originally, you know, when I stood this thing up, it was like every band member will have their own charitable organization. And then <laughs> as we do media and press, you know, whatever it might be, we can each talk about, you know, what what we believe in and the thing that we're contributing to. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of quickly turned into like me doing all the media. <laughs> and so, so I ended up just only ever talking about warrior's heart. So we condensed it down to these two. And I mm-hmm. think for our next album, which will come out in the fall, um, we may change who we're contributing to, but it'll be, you know, very similar type of type of group of folks. That's cool. And those are great organizations. I, I've never heard of either of them. So um, we'll definitely put that information up on our social media as well, just to, sure. to give people uh, a place to click and look um, for that. So that's cool. Yeah, part of it, you know, I, I try and say this too, and just one thing I want to get out before um, we wrap up, but I'm I'm not doing this, you know, to be a famous guy and riding in limos and stuff like that. Like that's never going to happen unless this thing is just absolutely gigantic. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just not that much monetary compensation that comes in from something like that. Um, I'm out there. And the reason I became public was to let people know, like I've been there too. I've lived the dark days. I'll, I'll put my, you know, deployment record up against the best. And really the point is, kind of the old ranger motto like rangers lead the way and that means you know i've been there i've done it and if i've done it you can do it too you know if i can do this and get through it then anybody can do it because i'm just a regular old knucklehead (laughs) that's that's great i'm watching the fedex i'm watching the fedex guy deliver a guitar to my front door (laughs) I feel like our conversation is ending here very quickly. No, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, see you later. So that was uh, great. Yeah, um, yeah. So, lots of fun. Okay, bye. Yeah. Um, no, uh, that's finally. I I had this guitar out in L.A. We recorded our album out in uh, in Los Angeles, our first album, and 
so I left one of the guitars out there because I couldn't get, I had to ship a bunch back and it was just like insanely expensive and I can only carry two on the plane mm-hmm. and uh, we'll check one and then carry one on. And I have like four or five out there. So this thing's been sitting in our producer's house for, you know, two years. <laughs> and uh, finally I'm like, yo dude, I need that thing. I want it back. <laughs> and I miss it. You're about to have a moment yeah. with that guitar. <laughs> yeah. It's like re- reunited. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, thank you so much. I, I think, you know, talking to, I mean, we've talked to veterans from all different walks of life, all different transition experiences, deployment experiences. Um, you know, I w I was pretty hyped up when I kind of Googled you and, and saw your history. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show because it really brings it full circle for everybody. You know, we want we want to reach veterans wherever they're at in their transition journey, wherever they're at in their recovery journey, um, whatever it is, we want to reach them there. So you sharing your story and sharing your outlet is so important for all veterans, you know, and so I really yeah. appreciate you being on the show. For sure. No, I, I appreciate you having a medium like this that can help get the word out. So I appreciate everything you're doing too. And the one last thing I want to leave with everyone. I, I recently, and I don't want to get into all the details, but recently reconnected with a former teammate who was one of the early kind of guys that got hurt, significantly hurt overseas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the dude was a hero, absolute hero. And because of the significance of his injury, ended up, uh, you know, on fentanyl lollipops for the better part of two years. And this was long before the military had any idea. There was no opioid crisis in America. Mm -hmm. And this guy ended up making some mistakes based on, you know, the amount of fentanyl and everything else that was in his blood system. Mm -hmm. And he ended up getting fired from the unit and then left the military and I don't know the circumstances of leaving the military, but ended up, uh, you know, homeless for the better part of 10 years, living in his car, hooked Mm -hmm. to heroin. And that's about as real as it gets. And that dude's life changed in one instant, you know? Mm -hmm. So to go from on top of the world and, you know, being a Delta force operator and everything else to being a homeless heroin addict in just under two years, pretty significant Mm -hmm. and that's one story just in itself but the real thing kind of comes next and that is i love that guy his you know all of his teammates all of our teammates we love this guy we want this guy to be a part of the circle like i don't care what you did it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what happens to people in that situation is that they feel this terrible shame right and so they're not going to go to a unit function they're not going to go to a reunion they're not going to go do things you know where they need to reconnect with their teammates and their former buddies and everything else and what i'm here to say is none of us remember all of the details of like why people left Mm -hmm. we've all got our own shit and just being a part of the group no one is i have yet to see anybody say Oh, you remember that guy got fired for this. I don't want him at the party. I don't want him. Nobody says that. Yeah. 
And it may be a hard first step, but staying connected and being connected with your group, you know, wherever you came from, um, you know, is a huge part of the healing process and can definitely help you. So regardless of whatever shame you might feel, you know, you got to put that behind you because we've all got something there. You know, everybody's got a skeleton in the closet Mm -hmm. and, you know, you, you'll find that not everybody remembers the situation, but they would rather have you be there and be a part of the group than, than not. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, that's great to close it out. Are you sure you don't want to do a podcast? We could like co-host. It would be pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I think, I think I would have to like put the music on hold if I was going to do a podcast because I think I would I would just go all in on it and uh, all right. Yeah, well, I'd love to to some degree, but well, if the music you know. thing doesn't work out, not that I'm wishing that for you, <laughs> but just yeah, remember yeah. this little baby podcast, and we would love there to have you. <laughs> there you go. Well, well, thanks thanks for having me again, and uh, any anytime you know, happy to talk whether it's putting somebody in touch with me that maybe I can help or whatever it might be happy to happy to do so. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, we will definitely be in touch. Thanks so much. All right. All right. Have a great day. You. Well, that was awesome. Um, Thank you for listening to our show today to learn more about us, to hear previous episodes, or if you are interested in being on the show, you can find us at aveteranspodcast.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at a Veterans Podcast. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Wisconsin Veterans Network, a Wisconsin nonprofit operated by veterans and serving veterans in need. Until next time.